We've got, uh, this is your two-minute warning before we get started here, so feel free to grab some coffee or cookies. Um, we are not providing donuts just yet for the main reason that they are not delivering to any of the churches. Um, so um, if you want to bring stuff Sunday morning for Bible class, just bring it, okay? And if you're uncomfortable eating something that someone else has made, don't eat it, <laughs> all right? Just be smart about it. So um, we'll at least, you know, have coffee and that sort of thing. Um, so fair enough? Fair enough. Okay, give you a couple minutes here to get settled, and then we'll, we'll get started. And just so you know, same with uh, the uh, the 8.15 a.m. service is the one that is streamed. We don't do any head shots or face shots of people. You've probably figured that out. When it comes to communion, we put that up there, put a picture up there, stained glass window or something like that. We'll do the same for Bible class. So we're now using our new camera there at the back, um, and it just focuses on me. So if you ask a question, then you'll be on the World Wide Web. So speak loudly. I'll probably repeat your question. Okay. And you can still, if you're on your smart devices, you can also uh, email in uh, or chat a question in, and Matthias will let me know what it is. So either way. Oh, uh, what fun. Are we good? Oh, we are live. You didn't tell me that. Good morning. Good to see you. All right, let's get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh, God, you have prepared for those who love you good things that surpass all understanding, Pour into our hearts such love toward you, that we, loving you above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We are bringing our study of uh, Professor Kurt Marquardt's book to a close, entitled The Saving Truth, a Doctrine for Lay People, a book that you can uh, buy, Kindle edition or print if you want. Uh, and we're in the very last chapter, which is uh, page 160, and we're going to pick up uh, on the, uh, the middle part of that page, Atheism with a Whimper, and this again is the chapter, Why Christianity, Faith, Facts, and Reason. So we're dealing a little bit with apologetics here. Uh, some of you, if you are in high school or college, will recognize some of the names of the philosophers and scientists that he mentions for uh, some of us that have been away from the uh, academic arena for a while, you're like, boy, that name sounds familiar, right? So last week we, we talked about Darwin. We talked about the rise of secular humanism, which began now to really bring into question, one, uh, where is truth found? Is truth found in God's word? Uh, or is it only found in this physical reality in terms of science? Uh, which also then began to beg the question, uh, who created everything, okay? Um, and so I think as I said last week, uh, you know, if you ever hear somebody say, well, I believe in the Big Bang, then you should reply to them, well, so do I. God said, let there be light. Bang! There is light. God said, let there be a hippopotamus. Bang! There is a hippopotamus. Now, they'll probably look at you a little strange, but that's okay, Okay? So we do believe that uh, God created the world uh, uh, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing, okay? He formed it by his word. He spoke it into existence. Now, does that mean that we as Christians should not study science? Of course not. Uh, science continues to inform um, not only of Scripture, uh, and, 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 and you might say vice versa, but uh, we're going to hear some, uh, some great stuff from Marquardt here 
uh, in this uh, text as well. Any questions before we dive into this part of the chapter? Nothing? You're ready to go. Here we go. Atheism with a whimper. Beneath the fulsome centenary rouge, however, the body of Darwinian doctrine was doomed to decay, for the whole scientific landscape had changed abruptly since Darwin's day. Gone was the old view of the universe as a clattering machine made up of indestructible little particles of matter. Einstein's famous equation had shown matter and energy to be interchangeable. Our seemingly solid world had turned out to be a pudding of congealed light with black hole currents beckoning from afar. The cosmos uh, had, in fact, become strangely mental. Sir James, and I don't know if it's, it should be Jeans or Jans, wrote that, quote, the universe appears to have been designed by a pure mathematician, end quote, and that it could be best pictured, quote, as consisting of pure thought, the thought of what, for want of a better word, we must describe as a mathematical thinker, end quote. And even Soviet scientists, trained in the rigidities of dialectical materialism, could not quite escape the impact of divine design in matter energy. One leading Soviet nuclear physicist, B.P. Dosenko, defected in Canada in 1966 and explained that physics had convinced him of the existence of God. Now this came as a far cry from the stereotypical scenario of science on one side, God on the other side. In the West, it actually happened that distinguished physicists rebuked trendy, trendy miracle-denying theologians like Rudolf Boltmann for their op- obsolete notions of physics. On the other hand, the popular Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe has been criticized for not admitting openly that the scheme implies a creator who, as it were, presses the button to set off the Big Bang atomic bomb. Right? And I think I mentioned in a sermon a couple weeks ago I had one of those flashback moments. You ever have those where you kind of flash back to something from your childhood? And, and the flashback I had a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned the sermon, was, was uh, uh, the, 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 the song by uh, Genesis, The Land of Confusion. So uh, for, for you younger folks, you probably, you might know what MTV is, but MTV is not what MTV used to be. MTV used to be just all music videos. And I mean, every singer, every band, they would spend oodles of dollars and and as, as teenagers, we would just, oh, couldn't wait to see, you know, the video. And so there was this, this, this video, uh, you know, and they've got, you know, kind of claymation figures. And uh, Land of Confusion, it's got Ronald Reagan and, and Nancy. Um, it did not portray Reagan in a good light, by the way. <laughs> uh, but uh, he's sleeping in his bed, and next to his bed is this red button to launch nukes against the Soviets, right, against the USSR. And, uh, and so he's got this dream of all this stuff going on, and, and he accidentally presses the button when he wakes up, right? And, uh, and so it's just kind of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, through the 70s, 80s, and maybe in the early 90s, there, there was still a lot of, uh, of nihilism, okay, uh, in, the, in the sense of, of, of all is going to pot, and, uh, and it's just only a matter of time. Uh, and so as Christians, we always temper what's going on in the world with the Word of God. That's the only way you can respond to, to, to all of those things, okay? Uh, so as a kid for my age group, uh, we grew up still hiding under our desks in elementary school. So if there's an atomic bomb, how are you going to protect yourself from it? You get under the desk. No, I'm serious. <laughs> yeah, and some of you that are older than me, you had even more than that. And, and, and two of the schools that I was a kid at you know, still had the atomic fallout shelter signs. You know, normally it was deep down in the basement. 
and, and some of the schools had old rusty cans of water and old MREs, you know, which uh, mischievous teenagers would often open up to see if they were actually edible. But I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> okay. So, um, where are we at here? So, the revolution in physics also upset the old view of science as a growing reservoir of infallible truths guaranteed by logic and objective observation. Professor Sir Karl Popper, in particular, became known as a pioneer of a more modest and realistic philosophy of science, which stressed the role of reason, imagination, and creativity. A good scientific theory, in his view, is not one which safely restates the obvious. Rather, a good theory risks refutation by capturing as large a chunk of the world as possible and making predictions about it which can then be tested and possibly falsified. Now, nothing then can be verified or proved true once and for all, right? So, so truth then becomes not objective, as Scripture would claim. Truth becomes subjective, right? So, and and that, that is especially the error of, of postmodernism, as, as we Christians would maintain. So, uh, nothing can be verified or proved true once and for all. A theory which cannot possibly be disproved, no matter what the state of evidence, does not constitute science but dogma. The respected Cambridge University philosopher of science, uh, Mary Hesse, argues convincingly that all scientific theories are, quote, undetermined by the factual evidence, cosmological theories especially so. Now, we can never know in advance which present-day scientific theories will be proven wrong in the future, and our most general, wide-ranging theories about the universe, quote, are most certainly false, end quote. So turning squarely to the fate of modern Darwinism, and it cannot be our purpose here to recite all the woes that have befallen it. Okay, so your head's probably spinning or you've already turned Marquardt off because he's, he's kind of gone down a little bit of this philosophical, scientific track, but for good reason. Hang on, he'll get there. The central and most devastating development in this saga needs to be considered, however, as a surprising sequel to the whole Paley-Darwin episode, which we talked about last week and the week before. Now, that nature is highly predictable. That nature is highly predictable has, of course, been known for some time. If nature acted now this way and now that, without any apparent pattern, science as we know it would be impossible. Fair point? That's fair point. Yet, in fact, stones fall down and not up. Heated water boils instead of freezing, and the earth goes round the sun in a year, not a week. Nature's processes, then, move along certain definite pathways in preference to others. Is it possible to discern in all this flux and overall direction? Yes. Everything tends toward chaos and dissolution. Consider some obvious examples. Piles of rubble do not tend to turn themselves into cathedrals uh, or spacecraft. On the other hand, cathedrals and spacecraft left to themselves do gradually turn into piles of rubber. rubble. Bombs dropped on houses produce heaps of bricks, but bombs dropped on heaps of bricks never produce houses. So we watched last night a movie the kids had been begging to watch, uh, 1917. Have you seen it yet? Okay. And, uh, and kind of a powerful movie. I mean, great uh, cinematography and, uh, and, 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 and all that uh, I don't know. I'm always kind of looking where God and theology is, and there wasn't obviously any of that in it. Um, uh, I thought, from what I've learned a little bit of World War One, it was it was uh, it, it was it was well done historically in some ways. Obviously, they had some artistic license with the story, which is typical. 
But one of the questions, I don't remember which one of our kids asked, uh, at some point when he's, when he's, he's he, at the end of the movie, he's going through a city that has been bombed out. And the kids, one of the kids, the boys asked the question, if we were to go there to France today, would we see that bombed out city? Okay. Or the no man's land, right, the, the, the place between the fronts, would it still look like that? And the simple answer, of course, is no. Okay. One, a lot of that area has grown up and covered that up. Is there still rubble down below and underneath? Yeah. And there's areas that have been left untouched, right, uh, that are still kind of memorialized uh, over in Europe uh, from uh, not only World War I, but also World War II as well. Okay. Um, but, uh, but catch his, his point here. A cup of tea will not organize itself into a hot half and a cold half, but the tea will quickly be mixed to a uniform temperature, even if hot water had been poured in on one side of the cup and cold water on the other. Okay, and now we're getting to the point. Nature, then, is a one-way street on which the traffic moves from order to disorder. Its basic traffic law is the famous second law of thermodynamics, also known as the entropy law. Raise your hand if you've heard of this or studied it. If you, even if you had a basic science class in college or high school, you should have covered some of this. In its original form, this law said that some of the heat used, say to perform mechanical work in a steam engine, is always lost to the system and thus unavailable for further work. Okay? And I remember as a little kid, I wanted to file, my, my, I wanted to file a patent. Okay, for a while, I wanted to become an engineer. Now, Mr. Long, I know you know all about patents and filing them and everything, but I had a great idea. It was a car that would be based on springs, and you would wind it up. And so you initially wound it up, but then what would happen is as it was going from the one spring, that would wind up another spring, and what would happen? We'd have perpetual motion. And I was so excited. I sketched it all out. I brought it to my dad. And he just broke my heart. He, we, we didn't laugh. No, he, was, he, didn't, he didn't laugh at me because he was, he, was, he was really impressed that I had kind of drawn it out. And I was going to get a patent and I was going to become a rich engineer and all this other stuff. And he had to explain to me about entropy and how, what's the, what's the issue, Mr. Long? What happens with the energy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. You, you, you catching catching part of the point here? Okay. Raise your hand if you've got a story you want to add to this. Okay. Um, so in its original form, this law said that some of the heat used, say, to perform mechanical work in a steam engine, always lost to the system and thus available for further work. Now later, the law was broadened to say that a closed system, that is one cut off from further energy supplies, will increase not in order but in disorder. Left to itself, order will be dissipated into disorder. A statistically unlikely pattern will decay into statistically probable randomness. Now, evolution, if true, needs to run in precisely the opposite direction. So, so just stop and just kind of, so, so God's created things a certain way. Um, I mentioned just briefly one of the very small points in my sermon this morning. Uh, things in this world, are they going to get better or worse, according to Scripture? They're going to get worse. They're not going to get better. Okay, uh, things are going to continue to work. We live in the last days and the last times. Uh, so be careful lest you fall into some sort of, uh, uh, you know, socialistic uh, grasping of a utopia uh, where things are going to get better or things are going to become more peaceful. Okay, now so far what we've seen, if you're a student of history, and it's important to be a student of history, 
is we've seen ups and downs. We've seen times of, of peace, right? Uh, and for some a little older, the greatest generation, right? Uh, after World War II and, and things were, were good and you get your Betty Crocker recipes and your, you know, uh, for us as little kids, we had the, uh, the little, what was that called? The no-bake, not the no-bake oven. Easy bake oven, yeah. I mean, it was just everything was was idyllic, and and it was just good, and and and, and then you you got the downside, right? Then we went through the late '60s and '70s, right? The Beatles came to America, and Elvis started shaking his tushy, and you know, <laughs> you know, and things just got you know crazy, and then and a little bit, you know, and then the, the, the '80s came. I mean, so you get this just kind of you know up and down, but 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 things are not getting better here, and we have to be careful as Christians in terms of what we expect and prepare ourselves for. Okay, any comments on where Marquardt's going or what I've said? Okay. Evolution, if true, needs to run in precisely the opposite direction, right? So evolution would say things are doing what? Evolving, getting better. So therefore, then, we should, we should see that. We should see it scientifically. So if you're if you're in argument with people that that truly are evolutionists and it's hard to pin down with all the various branch of science, but you definitely should have some supportable factual evidence that things are doing what, improving. Okay, that's a fun conversation to have. Okay, um, evolutionist Joseph Need Needham claimed this expressly quote. The law of evolution is a kind of converse of the second law of thermodynamics, equally irreversible but contrary in tendency. So how is evolution supposed to defy the second law of thermodynamics? The standard answer to this dilemma is that living organisms are not isolated systems but lie open to constant supplies of energy, ultimately from the sun. This energy enables them to overcome the downward pull of the second law and to upgrade themselves instead to ever higher levels of complexity. Julian Huxley, for instance, cheerfully admitted that evolution, quote, is an anti-entropic process running counter to the second law of thermodynamics with its degradation of energy and its tendency to uniformity, end quote. Huxley saw nothing wrong with this since the sun is always more than able to cover any energy overdrafts incurred by evolution, quote, with the aid of the sun's energy, end quote, he wrote, biological evolution marches uphill, producing increasing variety and higher degrees of organization, end quote. Okay? What have we learned about the sun? There's a report that came out about a year ago. What have we learned about the sun? Any guys follow? We know we've got a few scientists in here. Is the sun going to last forever? Okay. What about the heat the sun is putting off? Strengthening or weakening? Ah, you engineers, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not getting stronger. So, so even that power source is not going to, 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 to stay forever. Okay? All right? All right, you didn't like that question. Let me see if I can think of another one. Um, so this supposed solution is too much glib, is too much too glib and easy, however. The trouble lies deeply. For example, if the letters SOS or HELP appeared on a sandy beach, or if a bowl of alphabet soup spelt out strings of happy birthday, no one would imagine that long ages of sunshine and tidal action in sea or soup were responsible for these effects. <laughs> I like that one. The missing factor here is information, of course, and no amount of raw energy can supply information. Some sort of intelligent programming is required. 
Norbert, uh, I, I guess it's Wiener, <laughs> may well have, I'm such a teenager sometimes, I'm sorry, may well have hit upon the most important lesson of our whole computer age when he wrote that, quote, information is information, not matter or energy. No materialism which does, which does not admit this can survive at the present day, end quote. Modern information theory arose largely out of the needs of military communications technology during World War II, right? And, and if you've if watched the movie 1917, then you understand the need for communication, right? I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, don't worry, but that, that's kind of the, the heart of the movie, okay? The theory describes the statistical nature and behavior of that mysterious commodity, information, which is now coded and flashed about the globe and beyond in myriads of signals by various electronic communication systems, right? So I was, I was kind of reading through this this week, and, and I, I spent yesterday for a little while at a baseball field. And then this nice baseball complex in Noblesville was built in 1998, which, to be fair, is not that long ago. Nice facility. They've got turf infield, nice grass on the outside, right? And typical setup, if you've been to baseball or, or softball complex, complex, com, complexes, it's got four fields. And what's in the middle of most of those fields? Nope. Nope. What was in the middle of the four fields? What was right in the middle? It's not used anymore. The box where people run the scoreboards from. They built these huge towers, and we had this back in the city we came from, you know, with, with, a, with a huge, and, and not a cheap structure either, with doors that would roll up so one or two people could sit up there, watch the ball game, and do what? Push buttons for the scoreboard. Are those used anymore? And you know the answer if you've got kids or grandkids that play baseball or softball. No. Why? Completely absolute. Everything is, I don't have it with me, is on your phone. Nobody needs a scoreboard anymore. Everything is game changer. All the information now is done. And so now completely obsolete are these big structural places that people will run the scoreboard from and keep the score. They don't use them. I've had kids playing travel ball for <laughs> how long? <laughs> a long time, all right? And the last three, four years, I don't think we've been to a baseball tournament once in the last three years where one of these big towers with the four windows facing each field was open ever because now it's all done here, okay? Things have changed. Interesting, okay? All right, no, no comments on that one? All right. Um, so... Um, so information is now coded, flashed about the globe, and beyond in myriads of signals by various electronic communication systems. Somebody on, one more comment I want to make, uh, a, a, a friend on, on Facebook that doesn't live around here was taking their grandson on a trip. And they were teaching their grandson how to use an actual map. And they told their grandson, okay, we're going to take a cross-country trip but we're not using Waze or Google Maps or whatever you Apple users use. Um, so they actually had got out the old, you know, map books, Rand McNally, right? And, and, and had them follow along with the interstates and the signs. And I remember as we were driving through St. Louis a couple weeks ago with my older son and I, we were on our way to our golf vacation. And he said, man, he goes, you drove you know, because I lived in St. Louis for 10, 11 years, was a salesman and manager, so I was driving all over. He goes, how did you get around back then? You guys didn't have cell phones. You didn't have Google Maps. I said, we had map books. And I would look up the name of the street, you know, or, or the zip code, and it would tell me what page to go to on the map, 
and then and then you know I you had to you had to understand which way the addresses go up or down left or right you know and then I got a pretty good idea of where the place was I was going and then I navigated there myself I did that all on my own what you got there on your own without out Siri or whoever your Google uh, advisor is telling you yeah, yeah I know impressive isn't it <laughs> Okay, I don't do that anymore, of course, but... Now, it turns out that information behaves strictly according to the second law of thermodynamics, okay? Uh, random signals, quote, noise, do not upgrade coded messages but destroy them. It takes care and wit to keep noise from nibbling away at information, as even the New York Times amply confirmed when it apologized for calling someone, quote, a defective and explained the man was really a detective on the police farce. I know where Marquardt, he used to come up with all this stuff. It was really interesting. Large numbers of random signals only make matters worse. Electrical interference will show up as snow on TV screens, and that's something that most of our kids know nothing about, right? So, so the job of the, the youngest uh, uh, sibling in our household at the time was to get up and adjust the dial on the TV or the antenna, right? For everybody else, you get a clear picture, right? Now in the age of digital TV, you either get the channel or you don't. Uh, or everything is streamed online, okay? Um, so, nor could uh, a bolt of lightning, though possessed by energy aplenty, upgrade a commercial into, say, war and peace, right? Think about that. So, you can't just, not just, you know, you can't just have information automatically generated that results in a complex system. Put more technically, this means that we have here a special case of the second law. It can be stated thus, quote, any processing of information from already existing sources may decrease, but not increase the numerical measure of this information, end quote. Jacques Menard, I'm not sure if I said his name right, an uh, uh, arch materialist who thought that life was an impossibly lucky number that just came up, as at Monte Carlo, clearly recognized as, quote, one of the fundamental st uh, statements of information theory, that the transmission of a message is necessarily accompanied, accompanied by a certain dissipation of the information it contains, and that this is, quote, the theoretical equivalent of the second law of thermodynamics. Now, in the flurry of excitement over the first electronic brains, as they were called, uh, computers, many thought that these devices would soon explain the riddles of the human brain. However, the distinguished physicist Walter Heitler pointed out the true lesson of the brain-computer analogy. What the comparison does show us, if we take it seriously, is just about the opposite of what the constructors of these animated mechanisms think they are showing. If the nervous system is comparable with an electronic brain, then it has certainly not arisen by chance mutation. And it also follows that the nervous system clearly derives from a constructor or constructors who must have had at least the same amount of intelligence as the totality of the brain workers, from Newton on, who have made the construction of the electronic brain possible. I no longer have a Netflix subscription. I just got tired of all the junk that was popping up. Um, but uh, um, if, you, if you go on Netflix or some of the streaming channels now, pay attention to a lot of what pops up immediately. Okay? And you will see a lot of movies that are dealing, and this has been the case for probably the last five to ten years, uh, dealing with the whole artificial intelligence theme. It continues quite a bit. Okay? Um, and, uh, and, and, and that, you know, we're moving to that point where there's going to be a seamless integration of humanity and technology, okay? Um, as a Christian, you know, you need to be able to respond and, and do that 
Okay? And it is possible, as Marquardt is doing here, to also do that in a scientific manner. Okay? Um, but in terms of ultimately, you know, who is the creator? You know, what is a soul? This is often the argument I use uh, with my kids in terms of, you know, is there alien life on another planet? I'm not afraid to answer that. I say no. Why do I say no? You think I'm crazy. You think I'm ruling out the impossibility of alien life. What would make me say that there is not alien life on another planet? <laughs> Fair enough. But if we just say that, aren't there a lot of things? That, I mean, the Bible doesn't expressly talk about abortion. The word abortion is in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Do you believe in the Holy Trinity? Do you believe in something that's not in the Bible then? Or so one of my Baptist friends told me. Okay. How do you answer that? What do you think? Is there alien life? Are there civilizations on other planets? Come on. How do you, how do you, how do you deal with that? Is the lost city of Atlantis, are there people living under the ocean that have uh, you know, stayed apart from us because we're all about war? I'm asking you. I want to know how you answer some of this. Okay, I've got to, I have to repeat after you because you don't have a mic. So let's do it statement by statement. First statement. Oh, I'm not talking. Okay, I think there could be bacteria, life form. Okay. Um, well, that's not what we're talking about, though. You, you know what I'm asking. I, I appreciate that. Okay, there might be, you know, bacteria or building blocks of this, that, or the other. I'm talking about life that God has created, and let, let's just let's just call it for what it is. Are are humans different from all other animals that God has created? Yes or no? Yes. So God created the heavens and the earth, correct? He created the heavens and the earth. Okay, um, and it was the earth that He said would team with living creatures. Did He say the heavens would team with living creatures? Go check the Genesis account. I'm just asking silly questions here. Did he say the heavens would teem with life in the, in the same way as earth? Okay. So then we'd have a fun argument of determining, okay, so then how do we define what non, non-human, okay, you know, other life, organisms, bacteria, that sort of thing. Um, and I don't know, I'd have to have a couple of your home brews or good beer and have you explain all that to me. Um, but in terms of what Scripture says, okay, um, it was the earth that he filled with it. Okay, any place else you want to go with this? I mean, if you're talking evolution, if you're going to start to debate and wrestle with evolution, you have to wrestle with all the rest of this as well. And ultimately, what it, what does it come down to for you? I'm, I'm asking you. I mean, I can tell you what I think, but I can't believe for you. How do you deal with that? Okay, and Scripture would say that we are unique, right? Um, I mean, uh, even, even the angels, you ready for this, are lower than human beings. You know the Bible says that? Yeah, and so humanity is a pinnacle of God's creation, and so when you die, people do not become angels, okay? Um, don't fall into the whole Nicolas Cage, you know, angels becoming human and have a love story with Meg Ryan, uh, fun movie, you know, again, for some of us that are older, that goes back to the 90s, like with, with you know, uh, 
Yeah. What was that email movie with Tom Hanks? You got mail, right? Yeah. Now it's you got a text message or something. He needs to do a new one. You you got a Snapchat. They don't do Snapchat anymore. You got a tweet. So they need to upgrade those movies. All right, let's move on. You're not biting. You kind of are, but uh, okay. Where am I at? What are we at here? We can only dimly imagine. We can only dimly. Oh, let's see. The argument is all the more telling when one remembers how the human brain with a neocortex of some 10,000 million neurons, neurons vastly outclasses man-made computers, and it does. I mean, it's just, just you know, when you get into the, just the science of the body, and um, I mean, I've got, I have, you know, family members that are, that are, that are doctors, and uh, if anything, they have become more firm in their faith uh, of who God is and what he has done from their study of science, not the opposite. Uh, quote, we can only imagine what is happening to the human cortex or indeed in the cortices of the higher mammals, but it is at a level of complexity, of dynamic complexity, immeasurably greater than anything else that has ever been discovered elsewhere in the universe or created in computer technology. So said a world-renowned neurophysiologist, Sir John Eccles, 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 in his 77-78 Gifford Lectures. Together with his friend Popper, uh, I'm just going to say Eccles because I don't know how it is, has also vigorously attacked the popular materialistic notion that mind and brain function are the same thing. In these Gifford Lectures, Eccles confessed that although he had tried to follow the materialistic, materialist version of origins as far as he could, he had, quote, Grave misgivings. As an act of faith, scientific faith, it demands so much. And I think, you know, when you, when you talk about evolution and, and some of what is, what is taught, it takes, in my humble opinion, takes more faith to make those jumps and believe that than it does to believe Holy Scripture. Okay? Um, wow. So... Um, where am I at? An act of faith that demands so much. The great French novelist uh, Francois, uh, who's French in here, Marriac, whimsically said that it demanded an act of faith greater than uh, what we poor Christians believe. The nervous system, however, presents only a special case of a much more fundamental difficulty. That computers mimic brains in some ways is obvious. What is not so obvi obvious is that immensely sophisticated forms of information processing underlie life itself. So try and put two and two together here with where we started earlier. This is the import of the Nobel Prize winning discovery by Crick, Watson, and Wilkins in 53 of the now famous double helix as the structure of DNA. This, quote, golden molecule of life functions as a biocomputer tape containing the genetic program for each cell, each organ, and each organism. The language of these instructions has four basic letters, A, T, C, and G. Uh, you can thank me later for taking you back to high school and college classes, which the living cell reads in units of three so that the recipes for all the spectacular complexities of living organisms are spelt out in various combinations and recombinations of the 4 to the 3rd equals 64 basic units. The updated Darwinian, or neo-Darwinian theory, which Julian Huxley and the others had celebrated so fervently in 59, held that random gene mutations supplied the minor changes upon which natural selection then acted its wonders to perform. But if mutations are simply typing mistakes in the copying of the DNA code, then we are faced with the absurdity of a primitive amoeba-like cell, and where had it come from? Accidentally stenciling its way up Darwin's family tree by means of copying errors. 
Okay? And again, where's evidence of that? Ask for it. So when people claim this, show me the evidence of that. And it's not there. At a notable symposium, Murray uh, uh, Eden of of MIT put the hopelessness of the neo-Darwinian recipe like this. The chance of emergence of man is like the probability of typing at random a meaningful library of 1,000 volumes using the following procedure. Begin with a meaningful phrase, retype it with a few mistakes, make it longer by adding letters, and rearrange subsequences in the string of letters, then examine the result to see if the new new phrase is meaningful. Repeat this process until a library is complete. Now, how many of you in youth group, I've done this with many youth groups, sit around in a circle, and you whisper a little story in the person to your left's ear, right? Fido, the red dog, buried his bone in grandma's backyard, all right? And their job then is to do what? And their job is to do what? Now, here's a simple question. I've watched this many times, okay? (laughs) What happens to that story? It becomes nonsense. I mean, it very seldom is even a story that makes sense, right? At least the story of Fido burying his bone in Grandma's backyard is a story that, oh, okay, yeah, hey, my dog Fido, you know, he's, he's, kind, of, he's kind, of, kind of got red fur and he buried his bone in Grandma's backyard. And the story you end up with is utter nonsense. Not only different from the first story, but doesn't even make sense, right? Ironically, if you've ever watched uh, Ellen's Game of Games, <laughs> and don't get me started on Ellen DeGeneres, just just be careful. But but she she works stuff into some of what she says and teaches, and it's contrary to what we Christians believe. She's funny, don't get me wrong. Okay, she makes me laugh. Um, but uh, you know, one one of her games is to whisper. You know, they got these like big monkey ears on, and they've got to tell a story to the next person, and it never works. And every time I see that, I'm like. You're just proving our point as believers of the Bible that this that there's no way that any of this stuff can just come into place. Okay, sorry, I'll move on. All right, where am I at? Uh, 1981. In 1981, one of the world's leading physicists and cosmologists, Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, gave the number 10 to the 40,000th, which is one followed by 40,000 zeros, as a minimal starting point for estimating the information content of man and the higher mammals. Hoyle went on to say that the chance that organisms of such information content might have emerged by evolutionary processes during the relatively short time of our universe's existence was comparable with the chance, quote, that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. These odds are even more awesome in light of a simple thought experiment described by Jagjit Singh. Given a machine equipped with the English alphabet and allowing it one million tries per second, how soon can the machine be expected to come up, by chance, with a 31-letter line from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night? Oh, mistress mine, where are you roaming? Okay. According to Singh, standard probability of calculations show that it would take the machine some 300 million times the putative age of the cosmos to run through the 26th to the 31st possibilities. The information content of our little ditty from Shakespeare is, of course, vanishingly small compared with that of the humblest louse in Shakespeare's wig. 
So in refuting Jacques Minot's twin gods of time and chance, and of course that's why with, and, and, and my boys just laugh when we go to visit, you know, uh, you know, geographical and historical sites, we're just inundated with it. Oh, this, this, this rock was formed 30 million years ago, right? And 20 million years ago, or in this age of that, and, and <laughs> they have to come up with all these ages just to give it even some chance of it even happening. And the faith required for that is well beyond that of simply reading what Scripture says, which is what we're going to read before we close here today. I need to make sure I leave you with God's word after all this, okay? So in refuting Jacques Monod's twin gods of time and chance, the French mathematician George Soleil insisted that only one conclusion was possible, namely that intelligence must have existed before life. Interesting. To the objection that this was philosophy and not science, Salé replied that he would not quibble about words, but that the conclusion itself, quote, flows from observation and rigorous analysis of the facts. Now, the facts are that DNA is a vast self-processing information system, and that as a measure of improbability, information is the very opposite of randomness, or, quote, the law of higgly-piggly, as Sir J.F.W. Herschel called natural selection. Therefore, there is no escaping the verdict of Ludwig von Bertalafi. I've seen the name before. Bertan, Bertan, yeah, that guy. The founder of the general systems theory. Considered thermodynamically, the problem of neo-Darwinism is the production of order by random events in the absence of organizing forces. The second principle of thermodynamics and its equivalent in information theory, Shannon's 10th theorem, stating that information can be converted into noise but not vice versa, will prevail. Now, if this sort of argumentation is anywhere near the mark, then we may well call modern information theory Paley's revenge. For this body of facts and ideas has quite unexpectedly given Paley's rusty old watch a new computerized and thus more, much more formidable form. And this new form, and go back to the kind of beginning of this chapter uh, to understand a little bit about the watch. Um, in this new form, the watch argument haunts all stubborn conceits, uh, conceits about a self-creating universe. Thanks to the information approach which led to the discovery of the DNA code, neo-Darwinism at any rate is finished. And since neo-Darwinism is by far the most prestigious and representative version of evolution, that theory itself is now in disarray. Its flagship torpedoed and sinking, evolution's smaller vessels and lifeboats are scurrying away in all directions to avoid being dragged down too. Yet we do well to remember that as Hoyle and Wickramasinghe observe shrewdly, although the numbers disprove the received evolutionism, quote, it is possible in the fashion of a grandmaster with a lost game of chess to wriggle ingeniously for a while. Now, this wriggling seems most evident in attempts to squirm out of the second law's iron grip. Those who want to believe that cosmic order does arise out of chaos after all conjure impressively with the name of Nobel laureate Ilya Prigone. Some go as far as to say that the second law simply does not apply in biology. It is impossible for non-scientists like the present writer to track and assess the validity of the host of technical details involved in various current proposals. As we have seen, the history of science and philosophy should warn us not to expect in this realm fixed truths settled forever. Until there is something more solid than assumption and speculation to the contrary, though, the safest bet by far is that if anything in our current picture must go, it will not be the second law of thermodynamics. 
And that's what we're often accused of as Christians, right? Oh, you want nothing to do with science. Well, no, no, no. We believe, you believe in the second law of thermodynamics, Mr. Long? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so is it possible to be, you know, scientific uh, and, and yet have a belief that there's a God who created the world? Absolutely, okay? Um, President attempts to wriggle around it and save a collapsing, collapsing evolutionism look rather like the earlier rescue operations in behalf of that imaginary counter-oxygen uh, phlogiston after it had run up against gravity. Today, gravity remains, however reinterpreted, while, uh, do you say, is it phlogiston? Help me out here, smart people. Come on, Graham Boatman. You don't know. Okay, well, I'll move on. Phlogiston, okay, you're no help. Um, <laughs> has long since been discarded. Evolution made its big splash by appearing to prove God intellectually unnecessary in the name of science. Thanks to an improved science, it is ending up seeming more and more like voodoo. Okay? And we're going to pause there. I don't want to get into the next section of this chapter just yet. And I want you to pull up Genesis chapter 1 real quick, okay, um, if you could up on our screen. And if you're watching along at home, just open up your Bible or it'll be on the screen. Do you have a question back there? You're just stretching. I'm glad you're still awake. Thanks for paying attention. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's just read uh, uh, verses 1 and 2 here together. You ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay? So in the beginning, the very first thing that God did was to create heaven and earth. So prior to that, was there a heaven, uh, were there heavens or were there earth? There was nothing. Okay? Can you make sense of that? I can't. That's beyond my ability to understand. So I'm not even going to try to describe for you what nothing was actually like, okay? Uh, but that's what it was, okay? Uh, God created the heavens, and the heavens, of course, would include Mars, you know? So God created all these things. So is, is that a, a... I think you sent me a really cool picture on Facebook the other day uh, about... Uh, what was it? A uh, comet? Yeah. Um, so is it, is, it, is it good to study? Uh, uh, the skies and, you know, astronauts. and Absolutely. God created all that. It's a wonderful thing. Are we going to learn more about the heavens that he's created as we have ability? You know, spaceships or better telescopes? Of course we are. Okay? Uh, that, that's a wonderful thing. God created all of it. Okay? So don't, don't be afraid of exploring what God has created. The same reason that you like to take trips to go places that you haven't seen before. Right? I don't think our boys have been to the Grand Canyon yet. Have they? No. Um, and so that was something my wife and I talked about, that sometime in the next couple of years before they're, you know, go off to, well, one will go off to college, before they find a girl and go their own way um, and all that. We want to go see the Grand Canyon other places like that. The earth was without, read it with me, form and void. So when God first created the earth, there was no form to it. Again, can you comprehend that? No. But, but there, there was the earth. And so who brought form and order to it? God did. Information had to be inputted into it. The information didn't come from that which was created itself. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay? Um, so uh, verse 3, And God said, read it with me, Let there be light, and there was light. You want a big bang moment? There it is. 
So if you go up to verse 1, God the Father is creating, God the Holy Spirit, hovering, present, and here in verse 3, and of course the verses in the Bible came later by Masoretic scribes. So if you get into numbers, numerology in the Bible, and you start getting into verse divisions, okay, I'm going to caution you to totally ignore that because the original manuscripts of the Bible didn't have verses. Those were added later by scribes so that they could access the information. Okay? So be very careful. You go, well, well, this verse and that verse add up to the number so-and-so, which adds up to my birth date, which means that that's my life verse. And <laughs> I'm going to say poo-poo on you. That has nothing to do with it. Okay? Uh, so, and God said, verse 3, God spoke. So here's the logos. Here's the word, early service people, late service people, wait for it. There's the word. Okay, and the Word is speaking. This is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Let there be light, and there is light. And God saw that the light was good. So the light comes from the Word. Hang on to that. The Word is Christ, and the light is good. The next thing God did is He separated the light from the darkness. Okay, Uh, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So we typically say there on that first day, uh, sun created, okay, um, uh, moon as well. Things are set in motion, okay. Things are now spinning, okay, which keep in mind if the earth tilts off its axis even just a fraction of a degree, you know what will happen? Or we sway from our orbit around the sun, life would be completely unlivable here. And you want to say that's all by chance? that we're able to, to pretty much live almost anywhere on this, on this globe. I said pretty much anywhere because I really wouldn't want to live at the North Pole or the South Pole. But you can. There's people that live there. Okay. Um, but, uh, I mean, just to have the temperature fluctuations and the swings and the cycles and all that stuff, that's all part of it. Okay. We're going to stop there for today. On your own this week, read through the rest of the creation account. Okay. Cement in your mind what God has said now about how all of this came to be, okay? Um, and if you're young and you're considering a career in, in, in science and that sort of thing, awesome. What a blessing to be able to, to learn not only what God has created, but he also has given us as human beings mastery over this earth, over the animals and over all the metals and understanding all that. So creating things, wonderful, wonderful gift, okay? And if you ever come up with a car that'll go on its own, right? Come see me because I want to tell my dad about it, okay? All right, fair enough. Any questions or comments there? Yes, Mr. Long. Say that one more time. God is the glue that holds everything, that holds this place together. Amen. Amen to that. Amen to that. Really? Tom Hanks recited Luther's evening prayer in a movie. What was the name of the movie? Greyhound. Oh, was that the new one? Interesting. Okay, that's good. Okay, good. I thought you were going to say you watch like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. So I'm impressed with you, Greg. You got culture. 
I'm just joking. Okay. Any other comments? That's good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So her question was, if sin hadn't come into the world, would we still be a world that tends towards chaos? And I would say, no, I wouldn't appear to be. Um, I, I mean, again, that's kind of a hypothetical question that we, you know, kind of, we can't really answer, but sin obviously has, has, has broken everything down. We know that from scripture. Okay. Um, you know, we also, if you go down to uh, the Creation Museum, um, Noah's Ark, and if you haven't been down there, go make a day trip and do it. Okay. Ken Ham does a really good job with it. Um, he totally misses out on baptism and some other things from scripture, but he does a good job walking through the creation account. Um, and one of his main assertions is that even at the time of Noah, um, these people were really smart. And there's a lot that was lost in the flood, right? Um, and, and, and he provides some interesting evidence and assertions for that. And that was something I never, had never really considered before. But we look at, you know, you, you look at what's been uncovered, okay, and people have tried to answer this. Oh, we've got the pyramids in Egypt. Or we've got the Aztecs, right, down in, in Central America and all this, you know, and, and all the amazing engineering and how could they possibly have had this information? Of course, the answer from the world today is what? Watch Stargate. You'll get your answer. It's all from the aliens. <laughs> no, I mean, that's right. And, 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 of course, hey, so how did they arrive at this type of technology prior to when we see some of that taking place? And the answer was, that's, that was pre-flood, possibly. Very interesting. And I think it's a, it's a great, uh, you know, instance. Okay? In the same way you should ask your Mormon friends, if there was a lost tribe of Israelites that lived in upstate New York, why haven't they done any archaeological digs to prove that? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got more, but we got to stop. Okay. Let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen.